1: Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, I know that you normally have a guest in studio, or, or at least virtually, and you always bring in an amazing professional to talk to. And today, you are bringing the subject matter to the audience, to myself,
2: and I know that I'm going to learn a lot. Well, I, I think there's one topic that is on everybody's mind right now. This, actually, it's, it's <laughs> we live in interesting times. I think it was the old Chinese proverb that said that's, may you live in interesting times, and is that a blessing or a curse? And it's, it's probably a little yeah. bit of both. But yeah. one of the things among many is obviously inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, have you filled your tank up lately, Eric? So here's, here's the weird thing. So I've got this big old
1: Dodge Ram and I, I just cringe when I go to fill that thing, because I know, you know, it's getting 12 miles to the gallon on average or whatever. But what kicked my butt the other day was we bought my wife a car and it's a, it's a little Subaru, you know, it's a, it gets 26 miles to the gallon. It's a great little car. I went and filled that up the other day at Costco and it was $65. Yeah, that, for it's never be, for a Subaru. I'm like, "What?"
2: Yeah. yeah, I'm in the same boat. I drive, you know, I've got a couple of kids, so pretty typical grocery getter. I've got a Jeep or a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Oh yeah. And uh I think it holds 23-24 gallons and I'm pretty fortunate my my house is maybe a couple miles from my office, so I might go through a gallon, you know, a tank of gas every 3 or 4 weeks, but last fill up was about $120 to fill yep. that Jeep up. Pretty mm-hmm. unbelievable. So you know, needless to say, you know, everybody's feeling this. Obviously, energy makes makes the economy run, it makes the world run, it, it is a huge input cost for all of our lives. And and it's probably that along with what's happening in the supermarket is where we're feeling inflation the most significantly right now. So I just thought it'd be it'd be Timely topic for us to talk about, you know, what's going on in this environment, what maybe some of the parallels are to when we've dealt with inflation in the past, mm-hmm. what some of the past fixes are, what that could mean for the financial markets, and, and just kind of have a conversation and go from there. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So you are old enough to remember inflation in the United States in the 1970s, I'm guessing.
1: Well, thanks for that. Well, <laughs> I, was, I was, you know, five, but yeah, sure. I, okay. The Hot Wheels cars cost me extra.
2: <laughs> okay, well, but, but actually, I, I I didn't even know what year you were born. I am old enough to barely remember that as well. I remember as a kid, um, back in New Jersey, anyway. Used to have you had the alternate um, license plate deal, and I remember that as a kid. I remember getting mm. getting in my mom's I think she had a Pontiac Ventura and uh you know every other day and you could you could depending if you were an even or odd ending license plate number and i remember sitting in gas lines and that was the last time at least in hmm. this country that we've dealt with any kind of significant inflation and i i do have memories of that so uh i i apologize for for, for reminding everybody how i how old we are but uh <laughs> but it, you know obviously i wasn't in the business world then and, and i was just a kid and i just basically remember sitting in the car and, and waiting for gasoline But I did have one case uh, a lot more recently where I was able to experience and live through one of the most dramatic hyperinflationary environments that existed really in history. And that was uh, in Zimbabwe. A little bit of backstory for for those of you that don't know me. So in 2006, I was working in New York City. I left in February 2006. I traveled for about a year. And a country I spent a fair amount of time with back then was uh, Zimbabwe. And a little history on Zimbabwe. It was formerly Rhodesia in 1980. It became in Zimbabwe. And through the 1980s, they generally speaking did okay. They had 10, 20 percent inflation, but it wasn't it wasn't really severe. It ramped up in the 90s, and then for a lot of reasons, mostly political, it got really crazy in the 2000s. So to give you an example, I spent a bunch of time there in 2006. In the years leading up to 2006, you had an inflation rate in 2004 of 282 percent. 2005 it was 302%. When i was there in 2006 it was almost 1200%. Jeez. 2007 it went to 24,000% and eventually the currency collapsed and they were in, they were issuing you know 2 trillion dollar notes and it was and it was absolutely devastating because if you think of when when the country became independent the Rhodesian pound converted to the Zimbabwe dollar one zimbabwe dollar in 1980 for for some perspective was about was about tom a dollar forty-seven, or it was excuse me, it was a dollar forty-seven US. Let's call it a dollar fifty. What mm. you is uh, a Zimbabwean dollar. It was it was strong. It was kind of tied to the British pound at that point. By the time I got there, I mean it was a dollar was two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand Zimbabwe dollars, and it was pretty crazy. Jeez. But but the one thing that I really remember is two things. Is one how a high inflationary environment both absolutely shocked the economy to the point where very little happened for a variety of reasons businesses can't can't plan when you're dealing with inflation rates of of these kind of levels Mm -hmm. the medium of exchange in terms of zimbabwe dollar was essentially meaningless it was several hundred thousand you know zimbabwean dollars for a loaf of bread uh and unless you were coming in with hard currency it was it was pretty rough i mean as a western tourist that had american dollars in my pocket I could get in a truck or a car and get driven somewhere, but these streets that were beautifully paved back when it was Rhodesia before independence were basically now just giant walkways where you had thousands of people walking because nobody could afford the gasoline. The other thing that was pretty amazing was what was available in, in the supermarkets or in the stores to the extent that they had them. There weren't any prices listed because the prices changed every single day. Yeah. And so what the business was my main takeaway from that period of time is the business actually was really changing money. And there were, um, you know, I was, I was fortunate to spend a good amount of time there, but there were, there were four money changers that, uh, that I would hang out with underneath the street corner and watch these guys work. And the main money changer, the best guy was a guy named King George. And King George loved having me there because these guys were all locals and Bob Williams. And you, and, and you had, you know, an, uh, an American or a foreigner there, and and to King George's estimate, which is probably right, it attracted other foreigners. But it was interesting because you'd have Europeans, primarily, and Americans—the tourists—at least were coming there because Zimbabwe was all, was also sketchy because it was a little bit of a violent place at that point. That's when mm-hmm. the farm invasions were happening and everything else. They he got a lot of traffic, and that's why he wanted me to hang out with him every single day. And I just left the floor in, in New York and, and came from a trading environment. And I was watching these guys trading in denominations and numbers that were just astronomically large and you know, taking 20 euros and coming back with 200, 300,000 Zim, Zim dollars and just giant, giant stacks. And it, it just it left, it, it left a big mark on me. First is that markets find a way markets will find a way to, to, to make things work to price things and secondly it's a lot harder for markets to find their way and for people to plan and for economies to succeed and run when you have these excessively inflationary environments but it's it's something that that's um, always really hit home with me and I've thought a lot about that experience as we've as we've moved into this, Environment now really for the last year and a half, where all of a sudden inflation showed up in a way that it hasn't in this country in 40 years, um, and I certainly don't think that we're going the way of Zimbabwe in 2006 to say 2008, when it was a complete collapse. The currency went away, and and they basically you know they they went to U.S. dollars and and South African rand and and euro once the once the economy completely imploded. And ironically enough, they went from being the most inflationary economy to they had, they dealt with disinflation at that point. They dealt with falling prices because there wasn't enough hard currency in the country. And so, mm. you know, then they had the other problem where people wanted to hold on to these, hoard their dollars because it would be worth more tomorrow than it was today. And so, it, in terms of a whipsaw that that economy uh, went through, it was, it was something dramatic in world history. But at least the fact that I was able to experience that and see that I think gives me, you know, a little bit of perspective for for what's happening now. But uh
1: yeah, let, let me ask you a question because yeah. what what it makes me really curious. I've never I've never heard that story. I had no idea. Honestly, that that's how poorly I was paying attention to the world stage in 2006 apparently. Yeah. And, but what happened to like service type industries? And when I say service I'm talking, you know, it, gardeners, uh, you know, housekeepers, uh, things that are on a, on a schedule. And I just say those two, because those are easily scheduled, right? They're usually once or twice a week that are coming in and, and, and servicing. How would they possibly as business owners be able to figure out what to charge? Because that next week, it could be twice what it was before. I mean, how, yeah. how does that work with when businesses are so hamstrung, if you will, by that situation?
2: Well, they really can't. And so what you saw in Zimbabwe at that time, and you know, at one point it was considered the breadbasket of Africa. Uh, they had a, a pretty ugly civil war through the 1970s. But prior to that point, I mean, this was a British it was a British colony, and then they achieved independence. And then, of course, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe after that. When when they wanted to uh, to, to basically was an apartheid country, much like South, like South Africa was before the war. But what they found was is the economic stability during that period of time, which really disintegrated in 2000 to 2006. All of the things that we take for granted because we do have a stable currency all went away. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't this notion of maintaining your property or your yard because your excess, whatever you had that was barterable that you could barter with or it was spendable. Food's a little bit more important than making sure your grass is cut. Yeah, Um, true, true. Yeah, and so what you found is barter economy obviously blew out for sure. You saw that uh, the people became uh, very desperate for for other forms of, of currency, you know, particularly U.S. dollars, euros, South African rand, and so you could you could get an enormous amount if you had those currencies in your pocket. Uh, but if you had the local currency, they wouldn't even quote you a price because the, the goal was to to off to, to as soon as they would get that local currency, they'd want to try to convert mm-hmm. it to something, whether it's another product or something or whether it was hard currency the goal is to get rid of it as fast as you could yeah did, did you see any precious metals being exchanged at that at that point? you saw a lot of things because Zimbabwe at the time again it was it was the closest I've been to a country a complete free-font collapse I mean when I was there this is Robert Mugabe who's he was under uh, one of the catalysts for why they had their hyperinflation all of their all of the goods that they were able to sell particularly in terms of agriculture and mining and things like that that's how they got their foreign currency that's how they stabilized uh the, the country but they were doing land redistribution so they were driving out some of the traditional uh, in many cases white farmers mm-hmm. uh traditional business owners and seizing the assets and redistributing them to the local population which in theory was a right or wrong you know I, I could you can see both sides of it but you had a, you had industrial sized farms that were enormously efficient and all of a sudden you, you essentially stole that land and they did it by mm-hmm. force you know these these farms were being invaded and, and basically the farmers themselves were being sold in half with you know former former war veterans with ak-47s it was a really really bloody time and you'd move in 200 families that didn't know how to farm and so the farms began to fail and then while well, they could sell their copper and and they could sell the pipes for the irrigation equipment so they'd strip mm. it down, they'd sell that because it would at least get them some money to buy food tomorrow. But now the farm's not functional. Yeah. And so you, you saw essentially the countryside sort of devolve from, from this very um, efficiently run uh, agricultural paradise in some aspects to you know, a bunch of basically subsistence farming by a lot of very, very small uh, plots of land with no economies of scale. And then their foreign currency dried up. And then what the government did is they printed Trillions, like literally trillions and trillions of Zimbabwe dollars to try to buy foreign currency so they could get fuel and get other things that they needed. And as they did that, you know, the economy, kind of, the currency continued going to free fall. But to your point, yeah, they were trading, there were gems being traded, there was gold, everything, that yeah. everything anything that's in gasoline, <laughs> gasoline, and things like that were were a huge, huge, huge commodity They could they could a gallon of gas could buy you a lot as well. But it truly devolved into into an underground economy for sure, much of it illegal. And also uh this barter based economy that um it's really it's really hard to run a country like that. And yeah. in their case they weren't able to and the literally the economy completely imploded. Wow. But uh but it was I don't think we're going anywhere like that in this country, but there have been examples in through history where economies have gone hyperinflationary. It's almost always been for the same reason. It's been that the governments have gotten themselves behind the eight ball for some reason or another. in uh, In the wake of World War One, it was the Weimar Republic, Republic in Germany. is probably one of the great examples of hyperinflation. They had war reparations imposed on them by the Allied powers and couldn't do it, so they just printed money essentially to try to pay off these these war debts. And all of a sudden, that was the case where you had Germans doing, bring wheelbarrows full of of rapidly deteriorating marks. And the wheelbarrow was worth more than all the marks that were carrying, Mm -hmm. so people would steal the wheelbarrow. (laughs) It was was pretty crazy. But it's it's rocky when that occurs, because it usually then can lead to a form of civil unrest. You saw that, obviously, the rise of Adolf Hitler Mm -hmm. in the wake of that the violence around what happened in Zimbabwe. There's you know, other inflationary time uh, countries that have gone hyperinflationary. It almost never ends well. But you really see when you're able to experience one of those firsthand, just how vital and important a stable currency really is to the health and success of a country, for sure. Yeah. That's, that's amazing.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. So you, you spoke about the 70s, right? Yeah. Um, what, what led up to that? I mean, in, in a little bit of history, you know, when it comes to our issues in the 60s and 70s.
2: Yeah. And as you know, I'm kind of a I'm, I'm a markets and history geek, mm-hmm. for sure. I love That's it. That's why I'm here. But in the wake of, <laughs> yeah, absolutely love it. You know, in the wake of World War II, it, the, it, the question was, all right, what is going to be uh, the world reserve currency, and of course, the United States was victorious on both fronts after World War II, and it was after the Bretton Woods Agreement, everything was going to be based in the U.S. dollar, and uh, the U.S. dollar was essentially viewed as being good as gold. So, governments around the world, if we ran a deficit, let's say we sent um, England more, you know, more money to buy their stuff than they had had returned to us in the form of buying our stuff, now they had they had dollars it's sitting in their central bank, and they could literally hand those back to the United States and saying, okay, redeem me at $30 an ounce in gold. And we did, and we did for a long time. Then we ran into the situation in the 1960s. We had two things that happened simultaneously, and it kind of rhymes with today. You had Lyndon Johnson's Great Society where the goal was all of these you know, well-meaning, but in many cases, I'd say pretty disastrous federal programs that were going to eliminate poverty in the United States. Now, ironically enough, 20 plus trillion dollars at least of spending later. Poverty rates in this country are roughly the same as they were when the Great Society program started. Mm-hmm. So was it effective? You know, History sh- shows that it probably did help a lot of people, but overall it didn't change the math. It didn't change the, it didn't change the outcomes. But we spent a ton of money on that. And we had something else going on in the nineteen sixties as well, which is the Vietnam War. So we tried both guns and butter. We tried to fight you know, this this war over in Vietnam, which which was this proxy war against obviously what was happening during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and we wanted everybody to be fed and clothed and taken care of here at home. All that cost a lot of money and as economically powerful as the United States is, there's not an economy on the planet that is a limitless cornucopia that mm-hmm. can just produce whatever whatever you want to produce in any given time. And so you had inflation that was down around 1%, uh, really at the start of all this in the, in the early 60s. All of a sudden, by the late 1960s, early 1970s, starts to creep up and you're getting four or 5%. And that was very unusual to the American experience. Leading into that then, Nixon very famously, and he tried it in 1970, he tried again in 1973, tried to do wage and price controls, where life by, by ex- basically executive order made it illegal to give your employees a raise, uh, to increase the cost of your product, that type of thing. And he, he also conveniently did that until the, after the 72 election. But when he proposed that, it, it, the, the initial one was enormously popular. People loved it because they, t- they got tired of paying these increasing prices and they thought, wow, this is going to work what they didn't realize is that or they didn't think it through anyway is that businesses if they cannot make a profit just aren't going to produce anymore. And so you literally have farmers that were, you know, killing chickens, you had businesses that were manufacturing some sort of goods that just stopped doing it because they couldn't make money at those current prices. And it shows that, you know, inflation's not just it's not just an idea of what someone's willing to pay. It's a true monetary phenomenon where if there is do- if there's an, a, a lot of dollars out there chasing something, prices by just market forces are going to go up. But through the 1970s, the United States dealt with that. We, we dealt with inflation very much like we're dealing with today. The Federal Reserve was being viewed as being Kind of uh, way behind the curve back then, where they they were targeting interest rates, but they didn't realize that that the the money that was in circulation through a lot for a variety of reasons, particularly a lot of it was government spending, a lot of it was also Fed policy, was just increasing every single year, and so you had more dollars being created every single year that were chasing essentially you know, the same amount of of goods and services. You also much like today. You had these external shocks. You had the Yom Kippur War. You had the Arab oil embargoes. You had you had you know, had a massive failure when we when we had to evacuate Vietnam that, that led to questions about the stability of of the U.S. in a lot of different ways. There's there's a lot of things that really rhyme with today, and the Fed was viewed as being very slow to address that. Uh, and then you had a guy came in named Paul Volcker. And Paul Volcker came in as, as uh, head of the, the chair of the Fed in uh, in 1979, I think. But in 1980, he radically increased the, the Fed funds rate. Basically, he took it from uh, about 10 percent to almost 18 percent, and he held it there. And it led to an enormous amount of economic pain. You had a double dip recession. You had uh, you know equity markets that sold off. You had unemployment. You know, it went up uh, extremely high. This is Reagan's first term of office. And interestingly enough, you, you, Ronald Reagan's favorability rating in his first after his first year of his presidency was about where Joe Biden is right now, mid, mm. mid to high 30%. Because there was economic pain and people were being, you know, people were being hurt, but the Fed was being way more aggressive than they are right now. But doing what they could to 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 wring that excess money out of the system. And I think Volcker back then probably had a harder job because he had dealt with inflation, there is also, there's an expectation. If you believe that inflation is going to continue to remain high, that will, that will impact how you spend money and what you do. And, and U.S. consumer at that point, U.S. businesses that had 10 plus years of inflation. Right now, we're only doing about a year or so of inflation. But it, yet you, you really had to do what he could to, to dramatically shift the psychology back then. Uh, and it was incredibly painful. Uh, but after that, once inflation was wrung out of the system, I mean, 1980s and 1990s were a pretty good time for the United States. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a painful process. I mean, I don't think yep. anybody's enjoying this.
2: Right. And I think, you know, and I think that there's a couple things, a question I've gotten from clients is there's been a lot, you know, I, I read a lot of really positive stuff. I also got to read the doom and gloom stuff because I want to get both sides of the equation. And back in 2007, 2008, that was the first time that the federal, that the fed to the degree that they, that they have in the last couple of years got super aggressive in terms of just these direct liquidity injections that were that were put into the economy. And the fear back then was that we were going to see historic inflation. And ironically enough, we didn't. We didn't after 2007, 2008, in fact inflation went down. And there was a couple things in place that that we just we just don't have that today. First of all, people were shell shocked by the great recession. They did mm-hmm. not want to spend any money. And you also had China, even in an even bigger way coming online as being you know, the low cost producer of almost everything. So you had an expanding supply chain where you could go to these countries around the world that could do it for cheaper than we could. And yet people were reluctant to spend money where this year's kind of the opposite, where they did the same thing when COVID hit. They blew a ton of money into the system, but people now were flush with cash and we come out of some, some very good economic years overall. And so they were looking to spend spend all this money immediately, and people were people were giving money that didn't even need it, and they were looking to spend this money immediately into an environment where, because of COVID, because of lockdowns, because of enhanced unemployment, people just not working, because of all of these other policy uh, issues or policy actions that were put in place. Now all of a sudden, supply of everything goes down. So <laughs> you've got a ton of money and people's willingness, not reluctance, to spend it, but desire to really go out and spend it, against the backdrop of just not a lot of product out there.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let
2: let me ask you this because you brought up China, you brought up the,
1: you know, their ability to make it faster, cheaper, so on and so forth. Is there any parallel? I just it brought to mind Zimbabwe when you talked about the big farms being closed down, given, yeah. you know, the property given to families that then didn't know how to farm or didn't do it correctly or, or accurately or sold off their supplies, whatever the, the issue was, all of a sudden there's a country that's not producing the produce or the, the goods that normally would be into the markets and so on and so forth and keep that money internally. Can't Aren't we kind of facing that same issue with the, the, the effect that we've had on this country with, Taking so many so many supplies and and product out of the country, not being made in the United States anymore, um, isn't that is? Are there any parallels, or am I just imagining things?
2: No, I think there's a lot of parallels, and I think that's one of the reasons, particularly in the grocery store, that you're feeling this so acutely as well, is we're really fortunate in this country because we are we're self sufficient in in energy if we want to be. The administration chose not to be, mm-hmm. but we're also um, self sufficient in terms of our agricultural production. But Russia-Ukraine, particularly in terms of food, not as much in energy, but particularly in terms of food, is a massive impact because they—they're 25 percent of the global grain supply comes out of Russia-Ukraine, and this year they're just they're, you're just not particularly Ukraine. You're just not going to get that production because of the war mm-hmm. that's happening over there. Yeah. And mixed with that, now you also have shortages because of the COVID lockdowns and because of things that have happened around the world um, of, of fertilizers. Fertilizer costs have skyrocketed, mm-hmm. so that is that has impacted the ability of U.S. farmers to generate and produce as much as they would have in the past. And so I think that for the first time in a long time, you could be looking at the very real possibility of of, of acute food food shortages, hopefully not in this country, but I think around the world, you're going to see it. Uh, And that is, yeah, you've you've got central banks, not just in the United States, but, but around the world, have been very aggressive in terms of printing a lot of money in the last couple of years. And now a basic core commodity in terms of food a lot of it being disrupted at minimum pulled offline completely at worst and you know we're, we're seeing we're seeing the impacts of that for sure um and to your point in terms of supply chains a positive uh, I, i'm an optimist you have to be in this business i mean I, t- I, I tell clients if you don't believe that the future is going to be better than the past then everything we're doing is kind of a waste of time and, and i believe that markets work they find a way to to uh they find a way to work, even in challenging situations. And the human's creativity ultimately is going to solve big major problems. You know, all that being noted, it takes time sometimes to get from A to B. And when we had Jeremy on uh, the last podcast, you know, we talked about that supply chain coming back to the United States and that's in the process of happening. I think it's a really, really good thing. It's expensive to do that though. Mm-hmm. And it's time consuming and it's disruptive to do it. So the, the benefits, I think we're going to get down the road from that are going to is going to be some pain in the short term.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I just think about the fact that last time I was in the grocery store and I'm I'm in the middle of the country, I'm in Nebraska. Yeah. Um and obviously, you know, I'm not um, we don't have any avocado trees here. I know the avocados aren't coming from, you know, local farmers, right? I get that. But I was actually surprised at how many other products are not coming from the United States when it comes to groceries, even. So, uh, I think that that is, like you said, there's there's a lot of the manufacturing that hopefully is coming back, and and the the farming, and again the, the shortages. And I also want to be positive, but it's at the same time you just wonder how are these other countries outside the United States going to handle the the fertilizer issue and and all that growth that may not happen, and and what you know, how will that be reflected upon? You know, just your local grocery store is just one example.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree. And again, for some countries, I think there's going to be some, some painful adjustments for sure, as I think there will, there will be here. I mean, the one thing that the last couple of years have taught us between COVID and also what's, you know, Russia Ukraine is that these these supply chains can be very fragile Mm -hmm. Um, and we're seeing it in our own country, but you're, you're for sure going to see it around the world. No question about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, if there's ever a question of if you need corn or deer, meet. We're not short on either one of those up here. So you're welcome. Tomorrow, <laughs> it's right?
2: true. Nebraska, yeah, be have plenty of that.
1: <laughs> plenty, plenty, plenty. All right, what else do we need to know about inflation? What, what other information you've got for us today?
2: Yeah, well, I do think, you know, in term I think that what uh Chairman Powell's doing, he's the he's the current Fed chair. One of his heroes that he's very publicly stated was Paul Volcker, who was the the, the Fed chair that really wrung out inflation in 1980 when when Reagan first came in. And I believe he's doing the right thing. A lot of people in my in my shoes and in my position in the markets here don't like it because in the short term it has been a little bit painful. You know, you have the Fed being very very hawkish, but they've got a couple things they have to do. They not only have to naturally sort of reduce the money supply, and they can do that. They can do that by some tools that they have in terms of letting some of the some of the assets that they hold on their books mature off, they can stop doing in direct injections, which they were doing for a couple of years during COVID, and they can also raise rates. Those are the main top policy tools that they have. They've now issue they've, they've now expressed their willingness to put the pedal down with all of those and it scares the markets the markets don't like it in the short term but in the longer term I think it's going to be it's going to be hugely positive for sure if it, provided they can get ahead of it and I think that they, they are going a long way towards that the other positives I think moving forward are that you know the fed can't they can't necessarily stimulate production. They can't, if you're, if you're short on, you know, baby formula is kind of a bad example, the, the issue we've had with that, because that's another case where the federal government mm-hmm. shut down the largest factory and now we got shortages and they didn't get this thing reopened quickly. But they can't necessarily stimulate that production, but they can absolutely kill demand for sure by making things more expensive. And I know that, you know, we've seen based, even even in my neighborhood where, there were almost no houses for sale the tail end of last year. Now you're seeing houses pop up again. That's probably a product of the fact that the you know, thirty year rate went from three percent in January to five five and a half percent right now. And on a monthly basis, that's a huge number. So that's mm-hmm. going to that's going to give people thought pause in terms of saying, "Well, wait a second. You know, do I want to buy that house this year?" And then with the cost of everything increasing so much, do I, do I really need the car this year? Do I really need to to do some of these home improvements? And so, people, do I really need to invest new money in the business? All of that's going to slow down the economy, which is a demand killer. Which, which you know, it, recession it does it does dampen inflation, uh, which kind of leads me. To believe i think we may be in a recession right now i mean a recession i, I did a, a video blog on this which is up on my website a couple of weeks ago but a question i'm getting a lot of is, is what if we have a recession and i think we could be in one right now because a recession by its definition is just two quarters of gdp contraction we had an unexpected gdp contraction meaning the, the 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 economy in the united states shrunk in the first quarter if we find out in early july that the second quarter we had a contraction which we very well could then textbook we're in a recession Mm-hmm. And I'll tie this back to the financial markets. You know, stocks usually start to broadcast a recession about six months before it actually happens. Well, you know what? The market got real dicey after the high that we posted on January fourth. It's been pretty rocky since then. Mm-hmm. The S and P normally declines about twenty four percent. We were down about twenty one, almost twenty two percent about about two weeks ago. Uh, Nasdaq was down over thirty percent. The duration of these uh, bear markets tend to be five to eight months we're into the sixth month of this thing right now. so if we it does turn out that we find out we had a we're in a recession the markets have kind of said that's probably the case and uh, a positive at least would come out of that and is that hopefully then you know you, you get uh, you can get some of this inflation you can kind of wring it out of the system and that uh, we'll, we'll reset to more normal times where the money wasn't flying around like crazy like it was in 2020 2021. And uh, we get back to, to if there is such a thing these days, Eric, is ordinary business, we can get right. back to ordinary business. Yeah.
1: Well, here's the thing is that y- you brought up a couple things there that you know, people have to decide, am I going to buy the house now or am I going to not buy it? Am I going to sell my house now? Am I not going to sell it? Um, I remember just a a couple of years ago, I had to do some renovations on a home uh, that I was selling. And I was like, do I want to buy two by fours now? Or do I want to wait until they're not $12 each? You know, we had those big influxes of different things. Those are on a smaller scale, in my opinion, uh, because I'm still working so there's there's people out there probably asking the question should i retire now or do i need to wait and work a couple more years because of a b and c that's not something that they should just take lightly and they should be calling a professional which obviously i'm leading up to you giving out some contact information because this situation brings up so many questions beyond just what can i spend today it's should i be working today or should i be working tomorrow a b and c you know all those different thought processes how do they reach out to you to, to, to have this conversation ask those questions that are lingering?
2: Yeah yeah and, and thanks thanks for giving me a segue into that because one of the things with our planning that we do is our planning is not just what asset mix do you want. we stress test, we stress test our portfolios in environments that are high inflation low inflation everything in between. So we, we, we can physic we can actually visually show you, you know what and what five percent inflation means to you 20 years down the road versus two or two and a half percent, which is what we've historically been normal been used to in this country. But in terms of reaching out, um, you know, our office number here is 602-255-0555. You can call myself, a member of my team, and we'd love to set up a call and just and talk about even on a basic level, what are you concerned about? And how in the past, what are some things as we've been in these inflationary environments that have worked? Because it it's there's some things that really work well if this inflation turns out to be more than transitory, which I think it probably is. At least in the, at least it's we're going to be dealing with it for for at least a little while longer. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those investments and what are some of those things that you can do to sort of hedge some of the risks to your portfolio and that have actually worked well in that environment in the past? And I'd I'd love to have that conversation. So you can call myself a member of my team. You could email me at Brent at RaymondJames.com, and we could set up a time just to just tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what's got you concerned. Uh, If again, like Eric and I started with, if you filled up your gas tank and and you're driving the Ram and it was 150 bucks to fill it up, Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean with everything else in your life? Even if it isn't your investments and and uh, and how long that money's going to last in the future? We can I'd I'd love to have that conversation.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's great. You know that Ram's got a Hemi and it's fun until you have to. Stop and guess. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>, absolutely, absolutely.
1: <laughs> All right, Brent. Thank you so much for your time today. I, th- I hope people take advantage of that offer, uh, you know, and, and call in because, uh, again, it's it's better to have answers and and have a clear vision of what's possible. Um, and then, like I said, you, or like you said, you like to stay positive. So I think everybody needs a little bit of injection of that positivity. Um, so I hope they do reach out. Uh, so again, thank you so much for the information today.
2: Hey, my pleasure. It's always great talking to you.
1: You bet. And our last thank you goes to your listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. It also makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602 Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, Member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.